This is Jimmy Scroggins. I'm the lead pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Are you tired of going to conferences, reading books, and listening to speakers who tell you how to do church when you know that you cannot do what they are recommending? You've come to the right place on our podcast. We're going to give you principles, strategies, and ideas that you can implement right now with the resources you have at your church because this is church for the rest of us. We're so glad you joined us for another episode of the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. Leslie Bennett and I are here with another great interview, and this is going to be our last interview for a while, Leslie. That's right. We're going to, we've had a good run talking to some of the people who have influenced us, and today we have with us Rick Duncan. Why don't you tell our listeners how you know Rick and why you wanted to have him on the podcast today? Well, Rick is the founding pastor of Cuyahoga Valley Church near Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Rick planted the church from scratch and grew it into one of the leading churches in our entire network of Southern Baptist churches around the country. He now serves with the North American Mission Board as the Northeast Regional Church Planting Catalyst. And I know we can all learn a lot from a pastor like Rick, but Leslie, I've actually known Rick since I was an elementary school boy. Really? Uh, yeah. So so when I was a little kid in uh, the early 80s, Rick Duncan came to Jacksonville, Florida, where I lived, and he became the area director for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And my dad was a high school football coach. And okay. so Rick and my dad worked closely together, developing the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in the Jacksonville area. And Rick became, and his wife, Marianne, became some of my parents' closest friends. And so I grew up looking up to Rick and Marianne and just thinking they were great. Uh, Rick's a former professional baseball player, played baseball at Vanderbilt. I don't know. I just always thought Rick was the coolest guy in the world. And then I got older. He moved off and went to seminary and ended up planting his church in Cleveland. So I wasn't in touch with him. But then I started being a pastor of a church in Louisville, Kentucky. We reconnected because it's not that far from Cleveland as an adult. And it's just been so much fun to rekindle our friendship and our relationship because he really is one of the first people in ministry that I looked up to when I was a little kid. Sounds like he was your early inspiration for church planting. He really is one of the great inspirations for me and so many others on church planting. So Rick, welcome to Church for the Rest of Us. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about your family and about your church. Okay, well, it is great to have the opportunity to hang out a little bit this way. And uh, I, I remember those days in Jacksonville, so formative for me personally, because your dad, Jim, and then Bob Tebow, a mutual friend of ours, uh, dad of Tim Tebow, those guys really poured into my life and inspired me. And man, your dad is like absolutely rock solid, man of integrity, <laughs> he is. real zealous. He's like a green beret for Jesus. He I'm is like he still is to this day, no <laughs> doubt. In his seventies, he's like that. Yeah, yeah. He, he takes no hostages, man. <laughs> I, I just love it. So, so anyway, yeah, my wife is Mary Ann. Uh, she went to the University of Alabama. I'm fortunate, uh, actually, a church planter that, that I know from her introduced us. We, he was a guy that was on a missionary baseball team. And so, you know, Bob Tebow planted a church there in Jacksonville. And my friend Al Baker that introduced Marianne to me, he's a Presbyterian pastor now, still involved in helping to plant churches. Uh, so, so I've had some kind of church planting DNA because of all of that. Marianne and I have three children, three adult children. 
Alan, Ryan, and Evan. Alan's married to Joanna. We have two grandkids, Ethan and Caleb. So uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Life life is good right now. Yeah, you have a full boat, no doubt. And Rick, you planted a CVC when? Tell us a little bit about when you did that and how you did that. Yeah, well, I uh, came to Northeast Ohio actually in 1986, so that's a long time ago. Church planting game is a lot different today than it was then. I don't think you could do today some of the things that we did back in those days because we used a little bit more of an attractional church growth model to, to plant the church, and I frankly don't think that that is an appropriate way to go about things today. But anyway, we can talk about that later. I graduated from Mid-America Seminary in Memphis and had applied to the North American Mission Board. They had a program back then called Church Planter Apprentice Apprentice Program. And I did have an opportunity to go to uh, Central Florida, maybe to plant. I had played baseball for the Orlando Twins double uh, A team down there. My dad was actually a pastor in Central Florida, and then I, I had an uncle in the state missions department here in Ohio. He kept saying, "Come to Ohio, come to Ohio." So we came for a visit, did an interview, and then I went back to talk to the seminary president at Mid America, Dr. Gray Allison. <laughs> and here's what he said: He goes, Rick, anybody could go to Florida. Now he wasn't thinking about South Florida. Well, no, you don't. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, anybody could go to Florida, but who'll go to Cleveland? He says. <laughs> and, Challenge. And basically, you. he was he was a guy that just was passionate about getting people into harder places for ministry. And I had a friend named Todd Petersburg who actually was uh, with crew at Vanderbilt when I was there. And then he had transitioned uh, with Athletes in Action to Cleveland. So he was the chaplain for the Browns, the Cavs, and the Indians. So I called him up and I said, hey man, tell me about the spiritual climate in Cleveland. And he goes, well, frankly, most pastors in this area are defeated, depressed, and discouraged. There's only about <laughs> half a dozen churches that I would ever consider going to and taking my family to attend. And then he hung up the phone. <laughs> I kind of swallowed hard and I went, that sounds like a 95 mile an hour fastball. Let's see if we can go hit it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the challenge of planning a church, you know, where there's a lot of snow on the ground, where there's a lot of uh, ethnic religiosity, but no vibrancy where really there are only a half dozen churches with maybe a thousand people. It's like, okay, let's, let's go and see if we can do something for the Lord there. Yeah. But how did you do it? So you show up, you, you and Marianne and and you guys have to know, like Marianne's just this beautiful girl, Southern Bell, (laughs) university of Alabama. This, this guy, this, this redneck who played baseball, you know, and all this, you know, he, he and his wife go to Cleveland, Ohio, and just parachute in, how did you do it? Like, what did you do on day one? How did you get it going? Well, I just started knocking on doors. I mean, basically, all I was trying to find out is, like, hey, tell me a little bit about the community. Tell me if someone were to start a new church in the area, you know, what do you think they ought to emphasize? Tell me, why do you think a lot of people choose not to go to church and we heard, you know, negative, legalistic, out of date, the guys yelling at me instead of talking to me, you know, things like that. Church is irrelevant. You know, the messages don't really have anything to do with my daily life, you know, that kind of thing. So I just took a lot of notes. And every now and then I would have an opportunity to actually, you know, share the gospel with people. 
And so then we, we said, okay, well, let's kind of design a church that will try to address some of these areas. So, you know, today it's no big deal for people to kind of drop the Baptist label. But back then in Ohio, that was a big deal when we decided, you know, the people that we're trying to reach think Baptists are negative pew jumping holy rollers so we're, we're just not going to use that uh, name to market ourselves and and i had a lot of non-denominational training with camps crusade and uh, crew now and uh, navigators and baseball chapel and fca so i think our church kind of feels accessible to people in in this area and i truly tried to approach things like a missionary in other words where I grew up, that wool thing that you wear on your head that's that's close-fitting, yeah. it's called a toboggan. <laughs> Here, it's a, it's a knit cap. <laughs> that, that, that piece of leather you put in your pocket to put money in, it's called a billfold where I grew, grew up. It's a wallet here. And, you know, I'm a big SEC nerd, mm. but I've had to shelve that and become knowledgeable about the Big Ten. I had to become a Cleveland Browns fan. And you just have to begin to think like a missionary. And so that really begins to inform a lot of ministry decisions. What can I do from a missional standpoint to, to reach the people in this community. I'm not trying to turn them into Southern versions of Baptists. I want them to become passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And we are going to cooperate fully with uh, our SBC tribe, but that doesn't need to be what we lead with. So those are just some things that come to mind as we, you know, as I think back on those days and how we try to get things going. Okay, so you kind of had a, you had a you had a philosophy, make it accessible, think like a missionary. Okay, so you you did your surveys, you won a few people to Christ, you met all these people, you got all this data. What did you actually do? <laughs> well, we launched uh, life groups, small groups. I think we had about four or five of those going when we actually launched. If I were to do it over again, I would probably delay our launch and uh, spend more time in that gathering phase because that's where we led people to Christ. Today we say you don't want to start a church for evangelism. You want to start a church from evangelism. So I would have spent more time in that gospel sowing phase and to probably delayed the launch of our church. But about seven months after we were here, we got here in like September. And then in April, we actually had our first service. It was on an Easter Sunday. We had uh, rented space from a local elementary school and cleaned it up. And, you know, my wife, Mary Ann, she has a degree in early childhood education. So she kind of put the children's program together. And on the first Sunday, we had 66 people. Uh, the next Sunday, we had 46 people. The next Sunday, we had 35 people. And I was the guy that went <laughs> Going to, in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. I was the guy that went to Belt Baptist in Memphis. You know, and you used to, you know, thousands and thousands of people. I'm going, oh, man, this thing's not going anywhere. <laughs> and, um, but it kind of bottomed out at 35. I think that fourth week, we had 35 again. And, of course, you're counting anything that moves, you know. Right. Hey, there's a roach over there. All right, there's one more. <laughs> so uh, we leveled off. And, and I do think that a couple things are critical. I do think that missional attitude 
I do think a posture of prayer. I mean, we've been having early morning prayer virtually for 30 some years since we launched the church at least once a week. I think God honored that. I think God honored our spirit of, of generosity because when we launched the church, we said we want to be a church that plants churches regionally, nationally, and internationally. It was part of our mission statement. I think our spirit of generosity and desire to be used by God to do that meant that God uh, helped this knucklehead, washed up minor league ball player from six of Tennessee, get some traction. And, and God just began to send some, some core team members along our way. And, you know, about six months into it, we're running in the 50s. We had a big celebration service. Actually, a team from Bellevue Baptist came here and helped us make tons of phone calls to the community. We sent a bunch of mailers to the community. And then we had a big Sunday of 125 people, and we kind of settled at 75. And then the growth just began to become more and more uh, slow but steady. And, you know, after about 15 years, we're running 500 or so. And God miraculously gave us a piece of property. Jimmy, you've been there. It's like so nice. You get a piece of property like that. It is excellent. It's right on the interstate. I mean, it is phenomenal. Yeah. Once we we built our building, you know, all of a sudden you go from from 500 to 700 to it's like all of a sudden you're not a cult anymore because you have a a building with a cross on top right we're not a cult now right so anyway it's been a it's been an amazing journey well that's really a long time it seems to me to to persevere in ministry till you get to those numbers so how do you encourage church planners today with that story or if they're getting discouraged or downhearted because they're not seeing the kind of growth that maybe they thought they would have initially yeah, I, I think I don't think this is in uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, lists of fruit, gifts of the Spirit. I think I have the gift of plotting. <laughs> L-O-T-D-I-N-G. And I think, if especially if you're going to plant a church, like where you guys are, I mean, it's that's tough. That's like plowing concrete. Mm-hmm. And, it is. And I think in places like this, it's like plowing concrete. And, and you better have that gift of, of perseverance. And I think just reading stories about some of those missionaries, you know, like Hudson Taylor, William Carey, I mean, people that like ministered for seven years in a place before they had a convert, convert those frankly were encouraging to me. I'm going, well, what I'm doing, I mean, I'm seeing at least some fruit. So just, just keep at it. And then also, I think I came in here with the idea of like, we're in it to win it, not going anywhere. And I have seen a lot of guys come to Northeast Ohio, from the South in particular, who their wife was not happy. And, you know, a year or two or three years later, they didn't see the kind of fruits that they wanted to see, even though there was traction. You know, and they, they're going back to Oklahoma or wherever. And I'm, I'm thankful that, that actually, you know, my wife was one of the, you know, first followers, so to speak, who, who was willing to, you know, trust Trust me, my heart, my vision, and really trust the Lord that that, that good things were going to happen. So I, I really don't think you can be fruitful as a church planner without that strong, supportive spouse. And then a team of people, you know, we at our training with uh, church planners, we show a little video of a TED Talk. It's only like a three-minute TED Talk, but it's a guy who's actually showing pictures of people like dancing on a big hillside. Like yeah. the first guy gets up, he dances crazy, and then another guy joins him. And then, and, and the point that the guy's making is that if you want to be a part of a movement, it's the first followers 
who really make the movement happen. It's the first followers that join the lone nut that make things happen. And so it kind of makes me appreciate the people that back in 87 said, okay, we'll give this a shot. And uh, some of those folks are still dear, dear friends and dear, dear parts of Gaga Valley Church today. So I'm grateful that God gives us those first followers. So I would just say, hey, have that spirit of perseverance, be in it for the long haul, and then focus on the people that God has given you, and then God will send more. One time uh, you and I were talking about church planning. This is probably about 12, 13 years ago. And I was sitting in your living room with some guys that were wanting to plant in Northeast Ohio. And I said, Rick, what do you think are the biggest challenges? And you said, I think one of the biggest problems with church planters is that they they overestimate the show that they're about to put on and they underestimate the show that other people are putting on. <laughs> yeah. I'll never well, forget it, you saying that. Well, it, and here's the thing is like, I don't know, did, you know, J.D. Payne, he's, he's served. I with, know J.D. Uh, well. We, we talked yeah, together yeah. at Southern Seminary. Yeah, what, what a great guy. And I did a podcast with him a while back with our SIM Network ongoing training for trainers podcast. Anyway, he, he said that the model that we have for church planting is a model where we're asking a guy to come in and put on basically a show that it's taken some churches 20 years to figure right. out how to put together. Right. So so you're trying to launch on the first Sunday this robust, mature, you know, guy that can speak compellingly uh, for 35 minutes. The band is awesome. Flawless the tech. The program is great. Yeah. And the problem is you can't compete with what everybody else is already doing. Yeah. So, so you've got to focus on other things that you can offer rather than the show. And, and the goal can't be start a show. The goal has to be, I'm making this up, right? Make disciples. Oh, man, <laughs> write that down, guys. Yeah, write that down somewhere. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, see, well, the, the, funny, the funny thing is, Rick, I, I heard Andy Stanley tell some guys not too long ago a very similar thing. He said, you know, in 1996 or whatever, when he was starting North Point, he said, I was the only one in Atlanta area wearing jeans, no Baptist in the name, rock music, coffee in the lobby. He goes, good grief, every church in the world, every the Catholic churches all have that now. He's <laughs> like, so it's like, you guys are trying to start something using the same model we did in the 90s. And the thing of it is, everyone's already doing that. And right. I think, I think exactly. that's what you were telling the church planners in your living room. The other thing that you said in the living room is you talked about the necessity of evangelism. And you said, I just don't think enough church planters are committed enough to winning new people to Christ. It's, it's like I want to start a service. So the goal that I have is to put together a team to start a Sunday service so that I can have a place to preach. And my preaching is going to be so Andy Stanley-ish right. that all these people are going to pray to receive Christ. And it's like, no, dude, start winning the parents of the children that your kids are playing sports with right uh join a health club and start winning people to christ there in other words you got to figure out how to get connected in the community where lost people are and don't just think if i start this outstanding sunday service because i mean i think you know alan hirsch and those guys are saying that less and less percentage of americans are going to come right to 
a service, no matter how great of a preacher you are or how great your band is or how flashy your lights are, they've already decided they're not going to come. So the, the church planner has to go, how am I going to reach those people? Because they're not going to come to this great service. I mean, I still have the command to go and make disciples in this community, so how am I going to go do that? So I think evangelism, I, I do think it's tougher today than it was back in the 80s when we launched. And I think you have to have that kind of that long-term missionary, gospel-sharing, evangelistic, witnessing mindset, which is why I love Three Circles, by the way, because there you, you guys go. have given – well, you guys have given us a tool that I think – really works well with people that don't have a religious language and 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 that's increasingly who we're dealing with and i know you guys are dealing with that so oh my gosh all the time and so rick i guess one of my questions then is uh for our model of church planting you're talking about something that may be a little bit of a slower longer burn to ramp up these groups and make disciples and when your kids friends, parents to Christ and all of that. How do you fund that? Like how would a church planter ever attract or get funding for what he's doing in a new part of the country? Because as you know, the people who fund this stuff, they want to see results. That's kind of the pressure that people feel about when are you going to start a service and how many are you baptizing? When you go to a place with a lot of far from God people, that can be tough. So I'd be interested in your interaction with that kind of issue. Well, that's a huge, huge, huge issue and i do believe that even if it's unintentional there's unintentional pressure from partners both at the denominational level and at the sending church level that that the planters see you know fruit hey uh, here's here's a story here's a baptism and there's how many we got on sunday and then everybody goes Whoa, we, we won and the problem is sometimes the, the planter can feel that pressure that can add to his sense of discouragement. And then the planter can sometimes, you know, do things prematurely because he's got that pressure. I think what we need to do is we need to come up with, with a couple of things about funding. One, highlight bivocational planters as rock stars. And we try to make a distinction between bivocational and co-vocational. Bivocational would be, I'm going to work this job, and when the church gets large enough, I'm going to quit my job and let the church support me. Co-vocational is, I've got a job, and the job is a means of evangelism for me. So I don't want to ever stop this job. I'm just part of the it's part of the strategy. Right. So so we gotta elevate that. And I've had conversations with guys here in Northeast Ohio because we do have have romanticized the idea of full time vocational work as that's the pinnacle. And and I think somehow and I don't I don't know how to do this, but but we've gotta help guys see that Bivo Kovo pastoring is something that's near and dear to the heart of God and it's something that we all need to celebrate and you're not a second class pastor in any way if that's the way you're going about doing things. In fact, you're a hero. We need more and more and more of you. So that's one way. The second way is if we could train guys to begin to think, okay, there are, I don't know how many Fellowship Christian Athletes guys, Navigators guys, University, Youth for Christ and so on. All these people have figured out how to generate financial support outside of a church budget. Yeah, perpetually. Yes. And so there's a great book that, that I've been highly recommending, and it's, it's actually the guys out on the West Coast uh, with Resonate 
that turned me on to this book. It's called The God Ask by a guy named Steve Shadrach. And man, he is really helping people figure out how can I build a support team that will go with me wherever I go. You know, and basically in the book, he challenged me to say, if you were really focused on this, you could raise your support for your ministry in 100 days. <laughs> and uh, we just sent a church planner from our area to a conference in Fayetteville, Arkansas, to learn a little bit more about that. But I don't think that a lot of church planters are, are quite ready to, to approach it that way. But, but if you approach that way, you spend full time on your church plant, and it's a team of people outside your church orbit, and maybe some go to that church, your sending church, but who are, are going to support you because there's a lot of money that's available that, you know, I want to pick on any organizations. Let's just say organizations outside the local church are tapping into family church people, Cuyahoga Valley people. Yeah, they are. To their causes. And I'm going, well, why can't the church planters get some of that money? No, why that's does a it good have question. to go to all of these parachurch organizations? And yeah, why does the I devil have all the, the good church, music? Baby. Exactly. <laughs> hey, listen, Rick, w- w- one thing, just kind of wrap up here. I am interested. Tell us a little bit about CVC now, because you've done all this work. You've made all these disciples. You've built a great church. God gave you a piece of property. You built a great building. CVC now has, I don't know, what size are they now? Uh, probably a couple thousand would say. That a couple thousand on a weekend. Yeah, yeah. You've transitioned. Yeah. There's a new senior pastor there. And what is your role with CVC now? <laughs> and, and, and you know, I'm still upset with you because I wanted you to become the successor. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't going to move to Ohio. <laughs> was, I, oh, yeah. You kind of made me feel yeah. like a wimp now. I moved to Florida instead. Wow. Yeah. So when I was 55 or so, you know, just in my personal devotional life, just reading about Moses, Joshua and other things, uh, you know, I I remember John Maxwell saying there's no success without a successor. So I'm like going, okay, the test of a dad is how well are the grandchildren living? You know, the test of a lead guy is how well is the church doing when you're not there? I mean, that'll that'll be the test of of how good of a pastor I was. So so I thought, well, I want to make a transition while I still have some tread on the tires and some gas in the tank and uh, talk with my elders about it. And elders, you know, agreed to to move in that direction because I didn't want to leave Northeast Ohio and I didn't want to leave Cuyahoga Valley Church. There weren't a lot of models of people out there that were saying, hey, I still – can stay involved in this church uh, while turning over the leadership to another guy. Because most of the time, if a lead pastor res- resigns and then somebody else comes in, the guy rides off into the sunset. So anyway, it took a little while to talk through the, the, the vision that I had. And then we brought in a young guy named uh, Chad Allen. And then I spent like two years helping him. He had been a teaching pastor, but he had been a lead pastor. And then the church was maybe, you know, half as large as Calgary Valley. So he had a couple of steps up the leadership ladder that he needed to go. So we spent two years and I just kept turning over areas of responsibility to him. The first uh, several months he was at church, I would preach 75%. He would preach 25 And we used kind of a dimmer switch approach. In other words, the light goes a little bit down on me and comes a little bit up on him. And so by the end of that two-year period, he was preaching 75% and I was preaching 25%. So then we had a formal Sunday where I passed the baton. And, and since I'm a baseball guy, I gave him a glove and a bat and all this jazz. Because <laughs> we had five weekend services, so I need to come yeah. up with different gifts to give him in every service. Anyway, 
and, and so that had happened probably five years ago. And uh, for the first couple of years, I stayed on staff. I was not part of the elder team anymore. I was not part of the leadership team anymore. I was part of the preaching rotation. So I probably preached at first once a month and then once every six weeks or so. And now probably once every six to eight weeks. You know, my role became missions and also leadership development. So I'm still preaching some at Cuyahoga Valley, and I'm helping as a full-time employee. With uh, About two and a half years ago, I went full-time with the North American Mission Board. My job is training the trainers of church planters kind of along the East Coast. Uh, it's changing a little bit. I'll be going to the Midwest next year. But anyway, you know, I'm still involved. Like I'm doing a wedding rehearsal tonight, a wedding tomorrow. I still do some funerals. And I think Pat, uh, Chad is pretty happy about it because <laughs> it's it's kind of like, hey, <laughs> I bet he is. for me to do. You know? Hey, I'm I know for a fact that. that Chad is. Chad's a friend of mine and has become a friend through our relationship, Rick. And uh, listen, to everybody who's listening to church for the rest of us, this is a model pastor. It's a model planter. He's a model leader. He is available to you if you're in our network with the Southern Baptist Convention. Or if you're not and you're interested, you can connect with Rick through the North American Mission Board. And Rick, I want to thank you for being on with us at church for the rest of us. I want to thank you for influencing me as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as somebody who's interested in church planting. So it means a lot that you are with us. Hey, I want to let yeah, our well, listeners go ahead. So much, man. Yeah, I want to let our listeners know that we're going to start a new season of the podcast pretty soon. We're calling it The Business on Church Business. And that means we're going to unpack some principles that most pastors and ministry leaders didn't learn in seminary. And so they usually learn them the hard way. Well, I want to teach it to you the easy way. So I would love for you to listen to us as we continue, as we start this brand new season in just a little while. Hey, listen, I hope you'll find these principles helpful. It's great to be with you on Church for the Rest of Us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins or Check out FamilyChurchNetwork.com to chime in on our blog. We want your feedback on today's podcast. Plus, we want to know what you are doing because we want to learn from you too. Hey, until next time, this is Jimmy Scroggins, and you've been listening to Church for the Rest of Us.